the Lord. The Lord is merciful and gracious. Mercy and grace. Commonly used words. And if we're not careful, over time they'll lose their significance. But we should never fail to be amazed that God has revealed His glorious attributes to us. So let's talk about it. I gotta say this. God is gracious. That's not just a doctrine statement, but my heartfelt proclamation of a God who saves men without obligation from sin's dominion and the bonds of Satan. Nobody sins in moderation. That's obvious from our evil thoughts to our conversation. We were dead. We needed more than an operation. We had to be brought out of the grave and made alive, awakened. It's quite amazing how in salvation, each person of the Trinity contributes like a compilation. The Father, He elected me. Jesus bled for me. And regeneration is the Holy Spirit's confirmation. So we repent of our abominations. Consecration to the God who is exalted above the constellations. The observation of the congregation is, God is gracious with a lot of patience, so we got to praise Him. This is the verse of our brother and pastor Shai Lin's song, Mercy and Grace. And in it, he raps about the mercy and grace of God in salvation. Now, we won't understand the lyrics if we don't understand man's problem. And the Bible tells us that God created man for his own pleasure, to live under him, and in doing so, man enjoying him and the life given to him under God's good rule. Man was called to submit to God, but instead willingly rejected God by rebelling against Him. Instead of submitting to God and His good rule, man declared his independence from God and thus earning for himself God's just judgment. But God, in His kindness, has provided a way for man to be made right with Him, to be forgiven, and that is in God's Son, Jesus Christ. So in this song, Shailen speaks of God's mercy in that he doesn't give repentant sinners what they deserve, his wrath. And grace in that God willingly saves men without obligation by sending his son Jesus to live the life expected of us and die the death we deserve to die if we accept his gift of salvation by believing in him. This is the definition of God's grace. God's willing, undeserved favor towards those who deserve His wrath. It's important to understand God's grace, to understand what God wants to communicate to us in the book of Philippians. Today we start a series in Philippians that will run through the following year if the Lord wills. And my desire for us is to grow in our understanding of God's grace in our lives, which it is my prayer that will lead to joyful submission to God's will for His glory and for our joy. So today's passage shows us that the Christian life from beginning to end is grounded on God's grace. And we will see that it is God's grace that saves sinners And it is also God's grace that empowers us to fulfill his calling. So this brings us to our main point, which comes in the form of a question. What does a God-glorifying church look like? 
And if you're taking notes this morning, the answer to this question serves as our outline. A God-glorifying church is one that receives God's grace and two, is empowered by God's grace. Receives God's grace and is empowered by God's grace. This is what God was teaching the Philippians then and teaches us today. So please turn with me to Philippians 1, and we will be reading the first 11 verses, which can be found on page 980 of the Black Pew Bibles in front of you if you're using those. This is the word of the Lord. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the very first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. The epistle or letter to the Philippians is believed to have been written approximately around the year 60, AD 61, which would be about 30 years after Christ's ascension. And it is known to be one of the apostles Paul's prison letters written uh, from Rome. And this letter was addressed to those in the Philippian church, as the title implies, and their leaders. The reason for this letter was that Paul was responding to a monetary gift that the church had sent to him through one of its members, Epaphroditus. And so we will go over some of the church's history as we go through the letter. But for now, let's dive into our first point. A God-glorifying church is one that receives God's grace. And we see this first in grace in the messengers. If you look at verse 1, we find here Paul, the Apostle Paul. Though he doesn't mention that he is an apostle, uh, we know that it is the Apostle Paul, but he identifies himself as a servant of Christ. But this wasn't always the case. As a matter of fact, this is where we find one of God's evidences of grace, right off the bat. One of the first evidences of God's grace is found in this in Paul's life. Paul was formerly known as Saul. And he was a, a zealous Jewish leader from Tarsus who had devoted his life to God. At a young age, he was taught 
by a famous rabbi named Gamaliel, where he grew and he mastered the Jewish history and the scriptures of the Old Testament. Though he had a zeal for God, it was not according to God's word, for his uh, life was characterized by violence, specifically in persecuting the church of God. And in the book of Acts, we read of his presence at the stoning of Stephen, the first Christian martyr, there in Acts 7. And as a matter of fact, Paul held the clothes of those who stoned Stephen. In Acts 8.3, we read of the way that Paul ravaged the church, entered houses, and dragged men and women off to prison, or Christians. Paul was spiritually blind and lost, but God intervened. One day, while he was on his way to Damascus to arrest Christians so that he could take them back to Jerusalem, God displayed his grace by interrupting his trip. God, in the person of his son Jesus Christ, appeared to him and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And after responding, who are you, Lord? Jesus replied, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Can you imagine that? Paul was persecuting the church of God. Yet Jesus asked, why are you persecuting me? In other words, Paul was persecuting Jesus himself. Rather than giving him justice, that is God's wrath, Jesus continued to extend his grace by enabling him to repent and believe in him. And it was from this moment, through a series of events, that Saul's life was transformed by the grace of God. He was led to believe in Christ and then lived as a messenger of the gospel for God's glory, which came at a high cost. He was led to believe in Christ and then became a messenger. This wouldn't have happened, though, unless God had appeared to him and opened his spiritual eyes to know him rightly and live according to to this new understanding. So we see an evidence of God's grace in the life of Paul. Now we also find Timothy. Timothy was the son of a Jewish mother and a Greek father. Though it's not entirely clear when Timothy came to faith and believed the gospel, we do know that Timothy was a believer of God and he was well spoken of uh, when he partnered with Paul in the ministry there in Acts chapter 16. And in one of Paul's letters to Timothy, Paul described Timothy's faith as a sincere faith, also possessed by his grandmother and his mother. So Timothy's genuine faith in God was also a gift of God's grace, God's favor towards him to believe. And this is the grace that transformed Paul and Timothy and made them servants of Jesus Christ, as we see there in verse 1. Now, we continue finding fingerprints of God's grace in this letter, because as we move forward, we also see God's grace in their mission. Another evidence of God's grace comes at the birth of, the, of this Philippian church, which is found in Acts 16. And you can feel free to turn there with me if you turn left. Uh, in Acts 16, um, we find uh, an account of what happened um, that led to the birth of this church. Paul referred 
to the Philippians as saints. But how, but what was the story behind this? Well, during the time that Paul and Timothy ministered together, um, uh, Paul and Silas ministered together in Philippi, it was an, an important city in Macedonia, and it was inhabited by retired Roman soldiers and Greeks. Philippi was known to be patriotic and was given to emperor worship and other forms of false worship to deities. Something amazing happened about the way that Paul arrived at Macedonia, which wasn't part of God's plan, uh, Paul's plan once again. In the book of Acts, we read that the Holy Spirit had prohibited Paul from visiting certain places, and it was through a dream that he was led to Macedonia. And we see that um, in verse 10. God's favor to the non-existing Philippian church was already present, was already at work. After spending some days at Philippi, Paul and his team went to a riverside where they believed they'd find a place of prayer, according to Acts 6.13. And it is at this point that we see God's grace once again. So we go from seeing God's grace in the life of the messengers to God's grace in the life of the receivers. We come across a woman named Lydia. Upon Paul's arrival, Paul spoke to this woman um, who happened to be with other women that had gathered together. This woman's name was Lydia, and she was believed presumably to be a successful businesswoman, a seller of purple goods or purple clothing, which was made for royalty. And she was also, she's also described as a worshiper of God. Luke, one of Paul's traveling companions and author of the book of Acts, writes, uh, there in verse 14 and 15, The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her, whole, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. God's grace was displayed again in granting her the ability to believe the gospel that was preached by Paul. And thus becoming one of the first converts in Europe and the first Christian in Philippi. Moving forward here in, in chapter six, sixteen, we see we come across a slave girl. In the following verses, in verses 16 through 18, we also read of how Paul casted out an evil spirit that possessed a slave girl. This angered the girl's owners because it meant the loss of their income or their profit. And because of this, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers and were falsely charged and accused with disturbing the city and advocating customs not lawful for them as Romans to accept or practice. You see that there. The crowds then attacked them. The rulers had their clothes ripped off and then had them flogged. And as if this weren't enough, they were then thrown into the prison to await their trial. What an experience, right? All Paul and Silas were trying to do was offer to them the grace of God found in his salvation so that they would repent and believe but instead, they were met with rejection. While this may seem like a bad thing, God 
was displaying His grace to them by using their suffering to advance His will of saving sinners and establishing a church in Philippi. Next, we see the jailer. Paul and Silas were now in prison being watched by the Philippian jailer. This task was so important that the jailer had Paul and Silas put in the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. We see that in verse 24. In other words, he wanted to make sure that these two men weren't going anywhere. And to his surprise and the rest of the inmates, at about midnight, we read that Paul and Silas began to rejoice as evident by their singing hymns to God. And the result of their worship to God was that God sent an earthquake so big that it shook the foundations of the ground and unfastened everyone's bonds. Now picture this. Paul and Silas get flogged, beaten. And it wasn't anything light. We're not told exactly how bad it was, but we know that the Jewish uh, people had laws according to how much a person could get flogged. And the Romans uh, had their own laws, but we're not told. But we can um, assume that it was pretty bad. And now they were, Paul and Silas are placed in jail in this prison. There's a huge earthquake as a, res- uh, as a response to their praise. And now all of the inmates, including Paul and Silas, have the opportunity to make a break for it. You and I would probably make (laughs) our way out as fast as possible before they'd come back and give us another beating. But Paul and Silas, we see that they testify to the jailer with their actions, verifying the gospel message that they were proclaiming. When the jailer woke up, he saw that all of the doors were open So he took his sword out and was ready to commit suicide. And the reason for this is that Roman law stated that if any prisoner escaped during the watch of a soldier, that soldier's life was demanded of him. So this jailer was ready to take his own life. And it is for this reason, believing that Paul and Silas had escaped, that the jailer was ready to commit suicide. But when Paul saw that he was about to do this, he cried out to him not to harm himself because they were all still there. The jailer had the lights turned on and once again he saw that it was true. He trembled with fear, fell down and asked Paul, what must I do to be saved? Now it's unclear if this what must I do to be saved is a what must I do to be saved from the Roman government? Because how am I going to explain this earthquake? Or, what must I do to be saved according to this message that you are proclaiming? Regardless of which one it is, Paul helps the jailer understand that his greatest problem is not the Roman government. His greatest problem was the wrath of God that was on him and the grace of God that was being offered to him if he would repent of his sins and believe in Jesus. The Lord was at work in him and used Paul and Silas's circumstances to help this jailer come to faith and be saved. So Paul replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Now, I want to make a clarification here. 
Paul's call to believe in the Lord Jesus for the salvation of the jailer and his family must be understood rightly. This call to salvation is many times presented in the form of pray a prayer and you and your family will be saved. If you declare that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. But this is not what the Bible teaches. Because if we continue reading uh, there in verses 32 and 34, these verses help us, help us understand what it means to believe in Jesus. Because we read in verse 32 that Paul spoke or explained the word of the Lord to him and to all that were in his house. In other words, he explained the gospel. And it was an understanding of the gospel that led them to respond to the gospel. And we know that the jailer and his family believed the gospel and repented of their actions because in verse 33 we read, And the jailer took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and they rejoiced because he had believed in God. One commentator describes this as, God washed the jailer's sins away, and the jailer washed Paul's wounds away. So we see that a work of God in the heart of this jailer that led him to believe and be saved, led to actions that demonstrated the grace that had been received from God. So a right understanding and belief in the gospel will always lead to obedience. Like Lydia, the jailer and his household had received God's grace of salvation by believing in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins and repented of them. And as a result of this grace, it led them to extending hospitality to Paul and Silas. If you're visiting us this morning and you know yourself not to be a Christian, we're happy that you're here. We praise God for whatever means he has used to have you join us this morning. But you may be wondering what you're doing here or possibly why your friend invited you or why you aren't using your time doing other things this morning. But let me tell you, you have been visited by God's grace. The very fact that you are here this morning is no coincidence. For God has shown you his favor by allowing you to come this morning to hear this good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He offers you full and free forgiveness of sin if you acknowledge your rejection of him and place your trust in his son, Jesus Christ. This grace cannot be earned or purchased. Instead, God offers it to you free of charge at his cost. If you have any questions about this, feel free to ask me, Pastor Jeremy, Pastor David, or your friend, or any of us here, and we'd be more than happy to tell you about this good news. Christian, God has extended his grace to you by drawing you to himself, and he has opened your eyes to see your need for Jesus. He has granted you knowledge and possession of the gospel. Now, I wonder how many Lydia's or jailers you know that are in need of hearing the gospel. Maybe it's someone at your workplace that is crying out like the man in Paul's vision. Come to Macedonia and help me. Mothers, maybe it's someone you see often where you run errands or care for your children. 
Maybe it's someone in your family who you know isn't saved but is willingly is willing to hear you out. Maybe you're in a difficult situation or trial in life that the Lord has allowed to come to you as he did with Paul and Silas so that you would meet strangers and testify of God's grace that has saved you. I pray that the Lord would grant us awareness to desire to share the gospel with lost people that we cross paths with. So Paul begins his letter by reminding the Philippians and encouraging them with the grace that they received from God, which led to peace with God, as we see in verse 1 of Philippians 1. So we've seen that Lydia, presumably the slave girl, the jailer and others, such as the overseers and deacons mentioned in verse 1, were met by the grace and salvation of God and received it and formed what eventually became the Philippian church. Though they did not deserve it, each believed the word of God's grace, which is the gospel, and were transformed from sinners to saints, all by the grace of God. So this first point, a God-glorifying church, is one that receives God's grace. This leads us to our second point. A God-glorifying church is one that is empowered by God's grace. Empowered by God's grace. Having received the grace of the gospel, this church received many other blessings that accompany salvation. One of these blessings, as Pastor Jeremy explained last week, is the power of the gospel for salvation. It is... God's power in the gospel that gives new life to dead spiritual people who could not and cannot cry out to God for help. This power is also displayed in that God grants these born-again believers a new heart with new desires. Before being born again, we lived in opposition to God. We lived to advance our own agenda. We glorified ourselves. But once the grace of God enabled us to respond to Him, it also empowered us to do things that we've never done before. How? Well, it's God's grace to sinners in calling them to repent and believe in Him, to serve Him or to partner with Him. When what we really deserve is God's grace, I mean God's wrath. Not only that, but this calling to participate in His work is a good thing because it leads to our joy. Picture this. God, the creator of the universe, your creator, has called the end from the beginning. He has declared that in the end, His team wins. Now, I don't know about you, but growing up playing basketball, I wanted to play with all the good, good folks, you know, the ones that were talented and that could dribble and could dunk. But for some reason, I would never get chosen on that team. It seemed like they only wanted really good and talented basketball players. As a matter of fact, when I tried out for the basketball team in high school, tried out twice, I didn't even get looked at. Because they were looking for the best of the best. But when God calls people by His grace 
to repent and trust in Him. It is to serve Him. But what's amazing about this is that God doesn't seek the wisest of the wise. He doesn't seek the strongest of the strong. He goes for the unwise. He goes for the unweak. He goes for those that cannot help themselves. And he offers his grace and he saves them, draws them to to himself, and then invites them to participate in his work of salvation. This is all God's grace. And this leads to our joy. Why? Because who wouldn't be happy knowing that you play on a team that is going to win. God has declared that he will win. As a matter of fact, victory has already been obtained on the cross where Jesus gave his life and was resurrected, proving that he is God and that full payment for sins has been paid. We also see that just as Jesus found joy in obeying the Father, we too find joy in obeying God's call to serve Him. Because our desires begin to be transformed to align with God's desires. And this is all a gift of God's grace in our lives. So what exactly does it mean to be a partner? Because this is what um, we see or we find in the life of the Philippians in verse 5. We find that Paul thanks God in all of his uh, memories of them. In every prayer, he makes them with joy because of their partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. This is what the Philippians were doing. This is what led Paul to rejoice. The word partnership in verse 5 is a Greek word that, you most, that you've most likely heard before. And it's the word koinonia, which means... Fellowship. Now, fellowship is sometimes used and tossed around here and there in a way that doesn't capture what this word means. This is sometimes understood to be to mean hanging out with another person for lunch. Or if you're going to invite a friend to come over and watch a soccer game while you eat pizza and have fun, that's sometimes labeled fellowship. But that is not the idea that we get from the usage of the word fellowship in the Bible. The meaning it carries is more of a meaning of participation in a common experience and interest. And this is rooted in Jesus Christ. When it comes to the Philippians partnership, one commentator puts it this way. The Philippians partnership was that of cooperation in promoting the gospel. This is what was taking place in the actions of the Philippians. The grace of God and salvation gave them the desire to partner with Paul in the gospel from the very first day until now. It was God's grace in the gospel that saved them. It was God's grace that spurred them to give their life to the same cause. For God, Paul, and the Philippians, we see the purpose of partnering in the gospel is to advance God's kingdom. Why? Because God's desire is to create a people for himself by saving and building them up for his glory. So when he saves us, he calls us to participate in advancing his kingdom in at least two ways. One, in sharing the gospel so that others would be saved. 
And second, using our gifts that He has graciously given us to build up His church. Both of these things are dependent on God's grace because God is the one who offers and grants salvation. And two, God is the good gift giver who blesses His people with talents to accomplish His goals. So these are things that don't come from us, but instead are gifted to us by God's grace. And praise God that this grace not only saves us, but it also empowers us to obey Him and to carry out the calling that He has given us. The Philippians have partnered with Paul from day one as seen in Acts 16 by caring for him, by providing housing and medical attention, as we saw in the life of Lydia and the jailer. But now again, the Philippians sent another monetary gift to Paul to provide for his needs in order that the gospel would continue to advance. Not only that, but the Philippians showered, I mean, they showed their partnership by praying for him while he was in jail. It was the Philippians' prayers and God's work in them that gave Paul confidence that his present circumstances would turn out for his deliverance, which could mean a deliverance from his imprisonment or a spiritual salvation in deliverance from this earth. And whichever one of these Paul had in mind, Paul believed that his deliverance would come as a result of the Philippians' prayers and the work of the Holy Spirit responding to their prayers. These are all evidences of the fruit of righteousness that we see in Philippians 1.16 that he references. And these are fruits that God produces by His grace. So we see that the giving of their finances and making time to pray for Paul was something characteristic of the Philippians because they did this as a lifestyle. If you're a Christian and a member here at First Baptist Church, did you know that partnering for the gospel isn't limited to financial support and prayer? While these are good things that we should and can do, we can all partner here in the local church with our service, with our gifts, with our talents. Have you considered, for example, giving your time and care to serve in our children's ministry? It's a great way to partner with our church, with what we believe, to advance the gospel by teaching the kids that are in our care, praying that the Lord would work in them and save them for His glory. It is also a way that we partner with parents and with other servers here in the church so that those who are currently serving or so that parents can sit under the preaching of the Word of God and be encouraged and equipped to proclaim the gospel wherever they go. So if this is something that you haven't considered, I encourage you to consider it and reach out to our deacons and ask questions and we'd be more than happy to share how you could participate and partner in the gospel for God's glory. Remember, this is all a gift of God's grace because the only thing that we deserve is God's wrath. Next, we see that God's grace empowers His people to be bold for the gospel. We see in the life of the Philippians that they were 
partakers with Paul of grace in two ways. The first way was in suffering. The Philippians partook of Paul's suffering in prison by making his trial their own trial. Even though it may have been dangerous to identify themselves with Paul, which we saw that was already the case when Paul visited Acts the first time when he was flogged and jailed, the Philippians were bold to partner with him by not only sending the gift, they didn't FedEx it, you know, where it was safe. They sent a member from their own church to take that gift with him and deliver it to the church, where, to the jail, where he could have been arrested for being one of Paul's followers. Epaphroditus was sent by the church, risking being detained and jailed for being associated with Paul. That's boldness. This boldness is grounded in the gospel, in what Christ has done for us. In that if Christ has provided our greatest need and we are safe and secure in him, then we are empowered to go out into the world and obey God and partner and suffer for the glory of God. Because we know that no matter what happens in our life, we know that God, we are on God's winning team. Everything will work out together for our good and for God's glory. The Philippians were also bold in sharing in Paul's call to defend and confirm the gospel. While it's unclear what Paul was referring to with the phrase in the, de in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, we can understand it to mean whether I am in prison or whether I am arraigned before, my, before the judges for the gospel's sake, you all share with me in the grace of my God-given commission. Their support made them participants with Paul of God's grace in advancing his plans in this world. So just as, the, just as the Philippians lived in a time and place that was hostile to the gospel, we also live in similar times. The truths of God and His word are being rejected more and more every day in our culture and around the world. Jesus also lived in a similar environment and was eventually killed for His proclamation and defense of the gospel. But praise God that Jesus stood up to defend the truth of God and confirmed it with his life. Praise God that he willingly laid his life down so that we could be offered God's grace of salvation and live. So First Baptist Church, how is God calling us to participate in the suffering that God promised would happen to all who follow him? Perhaps it's by being bold in our proclamation of the gospel when we all go out to eat after the service. Maybe God is calling us to be bold by sharing the gospel with those who serve us, by bragging about God's grace and saving sinners like us. And even if it leads to rejection, ridicule, or mockery, let us be, let us be bold because of what God has done for us in Christ. I pray that we would be obedient by being bold for the advancement of God's kingdom in this world. His grace empowers us to look beyond whatever we may face in this world and tackle it head on. God is worthy of it. He has also promised victory through Christ's life, death, and resurrection. Husband, are you long-suffering with your wife? Or vice versa, wife, are you... 
long-suffering with your husband. To long-suffer means to have a long temper or to not immediately retaliate. Instead, to patiently forbear. If your spouse is a believer, do you know that your spouse is not your enemy when you're tempted to lash out and respond with anger? You know you're not to retaliate against your spouse. You know that your spouse is not your enemy? Sin, the world, and Satan are your enemies, are our enemies. Your spouse is God's grace to you, a God-given partner as a means of defending and confirming the gospel to your family, friends, neighbors, also that they would be pointed to God's grace. You may say, I don't know if my spouse is not a believer, is a believer. Well, the Lord has given you of his grace so that you would be a witness to your spouse. So we've seen that God's grace empowers his people to partner in the gospel, to boldness for the gospel. Now we see the third and last mark of a God-glorifying church. Faithfulness because of the gospel. Paul prays for fruit already present in their lives. In verse 9 he says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Paul prays for abounding love. And love, as we know, as Paul writes in Galatians, is the fruit of the Spirit in the lives of believers. It is from love that all other fruit is born. When Paul prays for increasing love, he doesn't limit their growth to love. He prays that this love would be the motivation for other fruit in their lives. And notice what Paul says about this love. He says two things. He prays that this love would be knowledgeable, which is an intellectual ability to recognize what's good and what's right according to God's word, according to his character. But this love isn't just knowledgeable. This love is to be discerning. It's to be able to apply what is learned in daily living. Because it's no good to just have head knowledge if we don't know how to apply it. So God acknowledges God's work of love in the Philippian and prays that it would increase. So having received God's grace, he prays that they would continue living lives in response to God's grace that shows itself in love. As it has already been showing in partnership, in boldness, in faithfulness. And this is what Paul desires of them that this love that abounds would be found pure and blameless as it is filled with the fruits of righteousness. In other words, Paul's desire is that the Philippians on the day when Jesus returns is that they would be found faithful. That they would hear Jesus' words welcoming them and us into his presence in eternity by hearing, good job, my good and faithful servant. Being found pure and blameless as we are in Christ. We are righteous in Christ because of his work. And it is God's grace from the beginning that draws us. It's God's grace that sanctifies us. It's God's grace that preserves us. 
And this is why Paul writes, and I am sure of this in verse 6, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. In other words, God's, we see God's grace from beginning to end. Salvation is a gift of God's grace. And He calls us to respond and participate in His work. To conclude, we've seen that a God-glorifying church receives God's grace and is empowered by God's grace. But what is the end goal? The end goal of a God-glorifying church is one that responds to God's grace for the glory and praise of God. And we see that in verse 11. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So we find that in eternity, when we spend the rest of our lives with Jesus, we will be praising and worshiping Him forever because of His grace. On that day, we will praise Him because of His work. We will recognize that anything that has been accomplished on earth is ultimately due to God's gracious provision. Our call, our response, our salvation. The one who gives thanks is indebted to the one who provides. So in our salvation, in our good works, in our eternal praise of God, God gets all the glory because He is the one who starts the good work and He is the one who finishes it. I pray that we would be a church that receives God's grace and then is empowered by God's grace to live this way for the glory of God. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we praise You for being the one and only true God, merciful and gracious. There is none other like You, O Lord. We praise You that You have extended Your grace to us by not giving us what we deserve and instead giving us Your undeserved gift of Jesus Christ by sending Him into this world to seek and to save. We praise You for the many ways that in Your wisdom you have drawn us to Yourself and that even now You are at work in our lives sanctifying us, giving us boldness, giving us power to partner for Gospel ministry. The way that Your grace works in us to make us faithful so that at the day of Jesus Christ we would be found pure and blameless all for Your glory. Father, we pray that while we are still in this world, we pray that we would grow in our desire to advance your will. That we would grow in our joy of submitting to you because you are good and worthy of being lived for. We thank you and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.